Good evening, everybody. Welcome to session number four uh, of our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy class. Uh, tonight, we arrive at the legendary, the mythic planet of Magrathia, uh, where some fairly interesting things happen. Uh, we will be, of course, continuing to pursue... Uh, the narrator, uh, which, is, which continues to be my favorite sort of ongoing story in thinking carefully through uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide this time. Um, and uh, just, I mean, really today I was noticing for the first time a really interesting pattern uh, that emerges when they get to Magrathea that I'd never really noticed before. Uh, and uh, I'm still not 100% sure what to make of it, uh, but... I thought it was really interesting, so I'm going to be interested to hear what you guys uh, have to make of it here as we talk about it tonight. But quick, before we start, um, just two quick announcements. First, don't forget, TexMoot is coming up very soon. It's the 13th of January, Saturday the 13th of January. If you're anywhere near Fort Worth, I hope you'll join us. Um, it's very inexpensive, uh, uh, $30 for the day, including lunch, um, and uh, it's going to be uh, uh, just a wonderful conference. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that. Um, uh, for undergraduates, it's only 25. We have a discount for undergraduates. So uh, anyway, I hope you'll be able to join us. I mention it especially now because this is most likely the last uh, session we'll have before um, the deadline is passed. So I wanted to make sure to mention it as this may be my last chance uh, to mention it before the event happens. So, um, But that reminds me then of my second announcement, which is to remind you that we will not have class next week. So um, the, our next session, um, which should be our final session on the book, will be the first week of January. So that'll be on Tolkien's birthday, January 3rd. Um, and uh, so that'll be uh, uh, so that'll be the f uh, the fifth session, last session on the book, and then we'll be off the next week because I'll be in Texas uh, in preparation for Tex Moot, and then the week after Tex Moot. So that would be what the eighteenth, I believe. Um, no, that just totally doesn't add up. Must be the seventeenth. Um, then um, we will. Uh, um, We'll be back and we'll do a final session then in which we will uh, talk about the radio broadcast, the original uh, radio broadcast of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and yes, Neil, you're absolutely right. Thank you for the reminder there that uh, the early bird pricing for Mythmoot uh, ends before too long as well. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, so we've got both of those deadlines rapidly approaching uh, for uh, uh, for upcoming conferences. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Um uh, oh yeah, hey Neil. Funny you should. Uh, I was thinking of you because I think I think we're 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 discussing the possibility of a Babylon Five uh, 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 discussion panel at Mythmoot this year. Uh, I'm uh, really psyched to sit and uh, uh, talk with folks uh, about Babylon Five for a while. Uh, so yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah, Neil. So I I I figured uh, you would uh, uh, you would get uh, get pulled into that. So yeah, that's, I'm I'm uh, I'm psyched. Um, oh, Stephen has a question about lodgings for Mythmoot. Yes, there's lodgings at the facility there. That is by far the easiest thing because we're going to be have you know all of our meals and everything are going to be right there. Um, uh, strongly recommend, and, and the price for the lodging there is way cheaper than most hotels that you're going to get in the area anyway. So um, strongly recommend that. Uh, there should be um, there should be information uh, on the uh, on 
Mythmoot page about lodging, but yeah, definitely um, there there should be there should be plenty of lodging uh, at the at the facility there. Um, cool. All right. Well, let's get back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So you remember last time we spent a lot of time uh, looking at the narrator and my primary questions. You know, the main things that I'm really interested in are things like who who is who is the narrator, right? Um, what is the more importantly, what is the framework uh, of the of the you know, from which the narrator is speaking? Um, and and as I was suggesting before, I think that that question, for me anyway, uh, got even a little bit more interesting uh, in uh, in tonight's session. <laughs> yes, Boomple says the narrator's he's just this guy, you know, right? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, <laughs> all right, let's. Um, Let's let's plunge in. Nothing to see here uh, is my title for tonight's class, because that is sort of the question. Is there anything really to see at Magrathea or not? Um, uh, so let's look at the uh, the way that this is introduced. This is how this is introduced by the um, by the guide. So this is a quotation. Of the, this entire thing is a quotation from the entry on Magrathea in uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Many men, of course, became extremely rich, but this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of, because no one was really poor, at least no one worth speaking of. And for all the richest and most successful merchants, life inevitably became rather dull and niggly, and they began to imagine that this was, therefore, the fault of the worlds they'd settled on. None of them was entirely satisfactory. Either the climate wasn't quite right in the later part of the afternoon, or the day was half an hour too long, or the sea was exactly the wrong shade of pink." And thus were created the conditions for a staggering new form of specialist industry, custom-made luxury planet building. The home of this industry was the, was the planet Magrathea, where hyperspatial engineers sucked matter through white holes in space to form it into dream planets. Gold planets, platinum planets, soft rubber planets with lots of earthquakes, all lovingly made to meet the exacting standards that the galaxy's richest men naturally came to expect. But so successful was this venture that Magrathea itself soon became the richest planet of all time, and the rest of the galaxy was reduced to abject poverty. And so the system broke down, the empire collapsed, and a long sullen silence settled over a billion hungry worlds, disturbed only by the pen-scratchings of scholars as they labored into the night over smug little treatises on the value of a planned political economy." Magrathea itself disappeared, and its memory soon passed into the obscurity of legend. In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it. Okay. Uh, Now, what do you notice about the tone here? What I want to do is I want to be really careful. How to describe this? Um... I want you to tune your ears sensitively to moments in the text here that seem to kind of send up signals or sort of... It's like raising a red flag, right? Like, you know, something about it was a red flag, except it's not a red flag in the sense of being like something bad or dangerous necessarily. But is there something that doesn't fit? Is there something that jumps out to you, right? Um, What do you notice in this passage? And uh, uh, and what do we see from that, Caden? I think you are exactly correct. Um, 
the 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 first thing, and I I think also it's one of the biggest ones. I, I started exactly the same place that you did, Caden. Um, at least no one worth speaking of. That's a great first observation. Um, that sentence, of course, is uh, another classic example of that Adams-ish uh, sort of stinger at the end of a long sentence, right? We've been seeing that pattern from the, from the beginning of the book. Um, but of course, that very pattern itself helps to draw our attention to the bit that's after the dash at the end of that sentence, right? And the point is not, you know, what is interesting about this sentence is not the mere fact that it makes a joke at the end. That's standard pattern, right, for the whole book. What's interesting is the joke that it makes. And the question, I guess, that I find immediately um, that joke to, to, to raise for me is at whom are we laughing exactly, right? Whom are we laughing at and whom are we laughing with when we laugh at the end of that sentence? Do you see what I mean by that? So, okay. Um, just listen again to the tone of this sentence. Many men, of course, became extremely rich, but this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of because no one was really poor. At least no one worth speaking of. Um, where... Uh, Good shame, yes, to be ashamed of, because no one was really poor, at least no one worth speaking of, <laughs> right? Um, first of all, notice that the speaker here, the writer of this passage, goes out of his way to point out that it's nothing to be ashamed of, right? Um, that whole thing is unnecessary. Right? If he had just said, many men, of course, became extremely rich. And of, for all the richest and most successful merchants, right, right, that's that's fine. right? That would have been fine. The mere fact that he goes out of his way to say, this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of. right? There's a, there's, there's a defensiveness there. right? As if we're assuming that there's something potentially shameful in the extremity of the richness of... Uh, of many of those people in the empire, right? Um, and it explains that, hey, no, if, you're, if, you, if you think that's something to be ashamed of, you're wrong. It was okay because no one was really poor, right? So there were no victims here. Um, so it goes out of its way to draw our attention to the fist. And if we weren't thinking that is that something to be ashamed of, we are now, right? Okay, so uh, we are... We have raised for us the question, is it shameful or not for how extremely rich these uh, people have gotten? And the terms are about equality and inequality, right? The inappropriate distribution of wealth, that's the issue, right? And it, again, the, the very excusing of it raises that issue. No one was really poor, right? The implication being, okay, if some people were really poor while others were getting extremely rich, that would be something to be, that would be something unnatural and to be ashamed of, right? Those are the implied terms of the defense that the writer is giving of the extreme wealth, right? Uh, of the, of the, the men in question. So this shows us, therefore, right? The, the, the stance 
that the writer is taking is that he's looking out for the little guy, right? He's sensitive to the fact that if some people were getting stepped on, it would be it would be bad, right? But don't worry, nobody is. At least nobody worth speaking of, right? So we see the joke is the fact that the writer is unashamedly elitist, right? He's making a he's making a, a defense, right? To say, oh no, no, don't get the wrong impression. It wasn't elitist or anything, right? And then he makes an explicitly elitist elitist statement at the end, um, and um, that's so that's funny. Um, but again, what interests me is the way... So, again, you see what I mean about saying um, whom are we laughing at and whom are we laughing with? Uh, my answer, at least after the first sentence, and again, and this is why you know, I said, as I said, Caden, I think it's really uh, uh, it's a really great observation. That's where it starts for me here. Um, after that first sentence, I'm laughing at the writer, not with him. Right? The writer of this passage... Who's the writer of this passage? Remember, we have to we have to we have to recall the uh, we have to recall the context, right? Who's the writer of this passage? It's the guide, Rob. Exactly. Yes, yes. As Arthur says, the book, right? So whoever wrote, so we we don't know. That's one of the things that's interesting about this, right? This is not our narrator, right? This is whoever wrote this and the entry on Magrathy and the guide, and we have no way of knowing who that could be, right? So this is the this is the Hitchhiker's Guide itself. Uh, that or, you know, the, whoever the author of this particular particular entry was, um, so at least no one worth speaking of. So now we're laughing at that writer, right? We're laughing at the guide writer who uh, uh, sort of set himself up for criticism that he might not even have gotten. Right, if he hadn't gone so far out of his way. Um, another passage that you guys are uh, alluding to is uh, smug little treatises. Yes, the word smug, I agree, also is another one of those that kind of stands out, right? Um, the significance of these things, see, it's really difficult. When you're playing the game... So, the moral of the story I'm about to tell you is, obviously I've not learned my lesson, um, but I used to try, back when I was an undergraduate uh, in English classes, I used to try to write papers in which I would try to make arguments about the tone that was being used by narrators or, you know, by, uh, you know, characters within stories or whatever. Um... And I found that it was super difficult, way harder to do than you think, right? Um, tone and style, both, actually, but, uh, but tone, especially, is very... It's easy to pick up on, super hard to prove, right? When you're in the business of saying, I gotta present evidence, right? Clear, black and white evidence of what the tone of this passage is, it's very, very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to nail down. Right. So what I'm trying to do right now, I wouldn't do in writing. Right. I mean, if I were if I were if I were writing on this, I don't think I would attempt this because it's 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 really tricky. But it's something that we notice, right? I mean, it's 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 an important part of the reading experience. Um, so I'm okay talking about it, uh, though. I guess, as I say, I haven't really learned my lesson. Um, but let me give you another example of why I think this passage really kind of 
demands these sorts of questions of us. Look at the last sentence of that second paragraph. Um, Gold planets, platinum planets, soft rubber planets with lots of earthquakes, all lovingly made to meet the exacting standards that galaxies' richest men naturally came to expect. Now, what's the tone of that? Is the writer of that sentence... Is that a jibe? Right? Is there... Is there... Because, see, it's very difficult. You'd be able to tell if maybe... Right? At least you would have a better chance of telling. If you were hearing somebody speak that line, you would, ha- you, you would get some audio, some, some audible clues, right? Based on tone of voice. Maybe some visual cues and facial expression that might help you to, to, to know, are they intending, is the person saying this intending to make fun of the rich people? Right? Because you could do it in that tone. If you were reading this aloud, you, you kind of have to choose, right? The exacting standards that the galaxy's richest men naturally came to expect, right? Are we saying that scathingly, right? Are we, are we, are we, you know, sort of implicitly criticizing the uh, uh, the extreme uh, decadence and self-absorption of those richest men? That certainly seems plausible, right? That would work. We could totally establish that as an argument but we couldn't prove it, right? Merely quoting that and saying, this guy's being sarcastic, right? This guy's making a, a crack at the expense of, you know, he's, he's uh, criticizing the wealthy men in saying that. But yeah, you can say that, but you can't prove it because it could just be entirely serious. How, how can you know, right? Lovingly made to meet the exacting standards that the galaxy's richest men naturally came to expect. Is the writer in sympathy with the richest men, or is he critiquing the richest men? It would work either way, right? So therefore, when you have your uh, when you have a passage like this, the thing to the 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 thing to look for are like the telltales, right? Are there any places where we're given cues which help to frame all the rest of it? Right? Which are, are there moments where, which are kind of giveaways, right? Which really do jump out and point in a particular direction. Again, it's not it, it's not proof, right? If somebody is you know if somebody else reading the book who would th- thinks completely opposite from you, they're unlikely to be convinced by that kind of argument. But um, but you can um, you can at least build a stronger argument, right? Um. Yeah, um, exactly. James uh, James Oakley says it's twenty percent what you say and eighty percent how you say it. Exactly, and that's the challenge when you're doing literary analysis, right? Because all you have is the twenty percent. You don't have the eighty percent generally uh, to work with. Um, Caden, I agree with you. Based on that first paragraph, I would say that the writer is sympathetic. The at least no one worth speaking. That's why I think the at least no one worth speaking of uh, is so important, right? Um, because there the writer seems to be. I mean, you can say you can always make the claim, right? Oh no, I think he's joking there too, right? Um, he's exaggerating for effect in order to prompt us to to join him in criticizing the rich people. Again, can't prove it one way or the other. Um, but I don't really believe that. Um, I don't think that there, if you're going to, 
If you're going to argue that the whole passage is tongue-in-cheek, that the writer of the guide is intending to mock Magrathea and its customers from one end to the next, right? if that's the whole thrust of the writer's point, not Adams's point, but the guide writer's point, right? Um, if you're going to make that argument, I would need some pretty big, uh, um, some pretty big tells there, right? And and I don't I don't see them, right? Um, the smug little treatises. That I agree. That's another really interesting point, right? But who is the butt of that joke? Smug little treatises on the value of a planned political economy. Who's, who's the butt of that joke? Yes, Caden, I agree with you again. Um, and Stephen, yes, good. The, the writers of the treatises, right? He's belittling the treatises. Um, and again, what, what's the point of the treatises? The treatises are critical of the rich guys, right? The, the, the treatise is critical of Magrathia and its customers. And it's those critical treatises that the writer of this passage is poking fun at, right? By calling them smug little treatises, both smug and little, right? Are both important and both point in the same way, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Rachel also points out, and the treatises don't actually do any good. I agree, Rachel. That's actually one of the one of the more subtle jibes there at the expense of the economists, right? Like, oh, okay, so you wait until after the collapse of the economy to write up smug little treatises saying, I told you so, when you didn't apparently tell us so. Um, yeah, right, anybody can, can write a little treatise like that after the fact to say, now that the economy has collapsed, uh, we now proceed to, to write smug little sanctimonious treatises about the value of a planned political economy, right? Yeah, thanks, genius. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so David, I agree, Magrathia was the problem, the scholars are correct, but they're also petty and ridiculous, right? Um, they're clearly not the heroes uh, of, that, of that thing. Um, and now we have the last sentence, as of course many of you are very importantly, are, are very, very rightly pointing towards, right? In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it. Now, whom does that line prompt us to laugh at? Where's the joke? At whose expense? And how can we, how can we know? James, I agree. The word enlightened, I think, is the most important word in the sentence, right? It's certainly the most remarkable word in the sentence. Everything else is fairly standard, right? That word is a word that goes out on a limb, right? Because it's it's also kind of intrinsically uh uh well it's a it's a it's an important word. If you mean it seriously, you're making a very big positive statement, right? But for that reason it's also kinda likely to be sarcastic, right? Um so is it so is there sarcasm there? Is he being sarcastic about the enlightenment of our days? That nobody believes a word of this in our days? 
Stephen. Excellent. We have to remember the context as well. Though this is it's a little tricky, right? But it's but but Stephen, you're absolutely right that it's important for us to recall. Um, we know it's all true, right? This is as comes after we're told that Zephod has discovered Magrathea, right? Or at least Zephod has claimed he's discovered Magrathea, and at least we have some reason to believe that it might be true, right? Um, so. But Stephen, it's that makes it tricky, actually, right? If the writer of this entry also knew that it was really true, then it would prove that it was sarcastic. But we have no reason to think that. In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it. Yeah, now, David, you're right. We haven't yet had it proved to us, right? We've, we only have... Zephod's claim that he has found Magrathea. Uh, so you're right. You know that it's it's it is it is it's it's not yet been confirmed. Stephen, good, very good. Stephen is recalling. Of course, we know that Ford Prefect is one of the writers of the guide, and in fact in the scene immediately before this, when he was still trying ineffectually to sleep, we just saw him attempting to compose an entry for the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? He was going to try to add something to the entry on Vogons, but couldn't think of anything vitriolic enough, right? Um, that happens immediately before he comes out and has the begins to have the conversation with Zephod about Magrathea, and then we get the new chapter with the entry that begins with the just the quotation with no commentary at all from the narrator, right, uh, on the guide. So, so Stephen, I do think it is interesting that we have just been freshly reminded of Ford Prefect's, um, the fact that Ford Prefect is one of the guide writers, right? Um, and, as you point out, Stephen, he is skeptical, right? He doesn't believe. Now, that doesn't prove, of course, that no writers of uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide believe in the existence of Magrathea, but um, but it's interesting, right? Um Yeah, James, I agree that it's the guide, again, not only showing us the relevant information, but how it's currently perceived in modern society. I agree. But that's exactly what makes it tricky. Um, Because that's what makes it quite possible, I'm not saying definite, but possible that Enlightened is intended by the writer of the guide to be sarcastic. Um, Because he could be making a commentary on on the fact that society doesn't believe it, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but hang on now. Hang on now. A couple of you have mentioned the author, right? We're not talking about the author. That's a, that's two levels up from where we are. Um, this, this is, this is a really fun game to play. Again, this is, this is what keeps reminding me of Chaucer because this is, this is what, this is what you do all the time uh, in Chaucer. Chaucer had so much fun with these different, le- uh, different levels of narrative. I was going to say layers. That's also true. Layers, levels, it both works, right? You've got, so you've got the things that the characters in the story say, right? We also have the Hitchhiker's Guide, which is inside the story, 
but it's not any of the characters. It's sort of compared to the characters, it's sort of objective. And it's kind of authoritative, but not really, right? Then you have the narrator who frames the guide, right, and gives us all of these things and gives us commentary on other stuff. And then you have Douglas Adams, the author, outside that. And we can't assume that any of these things are identical, right? And one, just one mistake, very understandable mistake, but one mistake that lots of people make is identifying the author with the narrator, right? As if the narrator is really, is just transparently speaking for Adams. Not necessarily true at all. Um, uh, So whatever we learn about what the author of this passage, by the author of this passage, I mean the author of the hitchhiker's guide, right? Yeah, exactly. So we have to, we have to, we have to be good. So that's why I'm trying to keep my vocabulary straight. I'm calling this, I'm calling that person the writer, meaning the writer of the guide, of this guide entry anyway, and then the narrator, and then the author above that. Okay. I just want, I just want to make sure we're, we're very explicit about all of these things. Um, okay. Um, now, we don't have any, now, and this is the, one, one thing that I would also say. I don't think we have anything like, uh, I don't think we have anything like um, enough evidence to even guess at who the author of this was. Like, who the writer, excuse me, here I am messing up my vocabulary again, who the writer of this entry was. I mean, it could be Ford, could be Zaphod, but we have no idea and no way of knowing and no internal hints that even vaguely point us in that direction. And so therefore, I, you know, to say that is merely to guess. And we, we shouldn't guess, right? Uh, sometimes we must uh, boldly leap forward to an inductive conclusion, uh, but that's not the same thing as guessing about something for which we can have no evidence at all, right? If we can have no evidence at all, we can't really bring it in. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> a couple of people teasing me again for my uh, 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 using this class as like product placement for my Chaucer class, my Canterbury Tales coming at class coming up in the spring. Uh, totally unplanned by me, but I can't help it. Uh, it's what I keep. Re- it's what I keep uh, being reminded of. Um, uh, yeah, and Jennifer, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Like a like a Russian nesting doll. All these layers of people, all sort of laughing at each other. And the great game, right? The great game is to figure out where do we sit, right? Uh, and can we draw any conclusions about Adams himself, right? About what the what the sort of the 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 the, the what is the meaning of this book? Therefore, right? I mean, in the at the end of the day, that's the big question, right? What is the meaning? of this book, not the intention of the author, totally different thing. I don't care what was in author, what was in Adam's head, right? Uh, I don't care what he thought he was trying to get at. Um, I mean, okay. I don't say I don't care. I'd be a little bit interested to hear him talk about, uh, what, to hear him tell us, uh, what, what I know he's dead, but I mean, it's not his intention that I'm interested in, right? The much more important question is what does the book mean? Um, and that, is the really fun thing that uh, really gets hard to uh, uh, to to um, to sort through. Uh, cool. Um, oh, so uh, Carita Whitehall's 
white holes are a theory. Um, white holes are not have not been observed, but they've been speculated about. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. All right. Where was I? Oh, last sentence. In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it. So, where do we come at the end? Oh, so, sorry. Um, uh, Matt, you're just asking the Twitch channel. The comments that I'm reading, and I'm sorry for the inconsistency here, is in the GoToWebinar uh, uh, session. So we have a GoToWebinar session. If you go to MythGuard.org and then go to the uh, uh, the, the Academy menu and click on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there will be uh, a link there for the Join Us link um, to the webinar so that you can join us. So that's where I'm getting that because there's no there's no delay there. So so that that's where we are. Um, ooh, Mike, great observation. Mike also points out, of course, in that last sentence. Yes, I agree. Uh, enlightened, I would say, is the most important word in that sentence. Of course, would be would come quickly behind it, right? Because again, that could kind of go either way, right? Um, if I had to, if I had to guess. Um, I would guess that the writer of the guide is not being sarcastic at the end there. Um, I think that the author really, the writer, darn it, as soon as I said I was trying to keep the terms straight, I started messing them up. Um, I think that the writer, as soon as the, uh, I think that the writer does not believe that Magrathia existed. And here's, here's, here's the reason I say that. Again, either, either reading will fit, because it's a tone of voice thing, right, which you can't get from the text. Either reading will fit. I like that reading. I think that reading works better on the whole. And the reason I think that it works better on the whole is that it's already clear from Ford's reaction to Zephod's announcement that... Ford doesn't believe that it could be Magrathia. Zaphod is convinced that he has found Magrathia. But it's not just... The context of their discussion is not just that it's one person against another. It's just that Ford happens to not believe it and Zaphod happens to believe it, right? That the, the two of them happen to be on different sides of that same divide. Rather, the clear impression that I get... The clear impression that I get is that... Um, Ford is voicing common opinion, right? Ford is as incredulous as he is because he's stating, like, the party line, nobody believes that Magrathia exists, right? It is accepted to have been a myth, right? Zaphod is weird, that's very clear, right? Zaphod is unlike most people. Um, if there's one thing Zaphod Bibelbrox is not, it is in touch with the mainstream, right? In general. Um, yeah, Mike, uh, good. Uh, Mike is recalling, of course, Trillian's explanation to, uh, uh, to Arthur when she compares it to, like, so she's giving 
the impression that she has gotten, right, she's not an expert on this because she's also from Earth and therefore ignorant, um, but she says it's like Atlantis, right? Um, a legendary thing that most people don't believe ever was real, right? You know, maybe an interesting and important idea, but, but, but probably not historical. Um, and that, of course, perfectly fits with how Ford responds to it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely... I think it's fairly clear that, by far, the balance of opinion in the galaxy is that Magrathea did not really exist. That Zaphod's faith in the existence of Magrathea is very unusual, and his determination actually to find it is positively deviant. Um, Ford thinks he's crazy. Now, it's Zaphod Beeblebrox, right? He's supposed to be, like, imbalanced and unpredictable, so that's kind of normal and fine, um, but still, like, it's, it's like, imbalanced and abnormal and very Beebleproxian, right, to, uh, to believe in, not only in Magrathia, but that you can find it. For this reason, I think that the guide, the, whoever was the writer of the guide, does not believe uh, in Magrathia because it seems that nobody does. And although the Hitchhiker's Guide might be uh, wildly inaccurate on occasion, it does seem to express this sort of common wisdom of the galaxy, right? It was not always accurate, but um, but I don't think... If it's true, and I see no reason to believe that it isn't, that most people don't believe, and almost everybody in the galaxy doesn't believe that it exists, it would seem to me very strange that the entry on Magrathea in the Hitchhiker's Guide would be making fun of everybody, you know, mocking them by sarcastically calling them enlightened. In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it, right? That would seem a strange tone for the guide to take when legitimately almost everybody doesn't believe in a word of it because they're enlightened, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why I think that the writer is being sincere. Which does make that last statement ironic. Um, But the irony of it is not the sarcasm of the writer. The irony of it is dramatic irony, right? Because we, the readers, already have reason to suspect, at least, that Magrathea really is real. And the firmness of that statement, in these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a a word of it, is a setup, right? And again... um, that works really well. So, so, so this is, uh, here's the process, right? Step one, that reading of the, of, the, of the line seems most probable. It seems to fit best into the whole ethos of the Hitchhiker's Guide, um, that it would not be bucking the trend of the whole common wisdom of the galaxy, right? Um, and making fun of people for believing what everybody believes. Uh, so that seems on its face, most probable. Then the second step is, okay, I I sort of plug that in. If that's what it does mean, right? If that is how we are supposed to take this passage, what is the effect of that, right? How does that change how we look at this passage and the passages around it, right? Um, And when I do that, I find that it kind of works out pretty well, actually, right? Um, That the way that it, the way that it makes that ironic, um, the, the kind of dramatic irony created by that, right? It's, it, it makes that last, that confident final line into a, into a setup line, right? 
it makes the writer of the Hitchhiker's Guide entry into the straight man for what we're going <laughs> to, for the joke that's coming, the joke that's going to be on him in just a minute. Which, in turn, means, isn't that interesting then, that the narrator has quoted this passage from the Hitchhiker's Guide. We've not heard any any words from the narrator, and yet it was the narrator who chose to plug this entry in in this chapter, right? And I cannot help but think that the 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 whole the punchline of the addition of this. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it gives us some background, right? What are we talking about with this whole Magrathia thing? It's important for the purposes of exposition, but it also has that punchline at the bottom which emphasizes the dramatic irony, right? Which emphasizes the fact that what we are about to see, what we are about to discover, is that the whole galaxy is wrong. The Hitchhiker's Guide is wrong. That itself is not unique. But everybody is wrong, right? We are about to experience, we readers, as we follow along in this story, about to experience something privileged, Right? to be a part of an incredible discovery, right? Um, With that in mind, let's keep going. That's what leads me to this really interesting... So it was that passage. I was kind of, you know, rolling around uh, that passage, uh, trying to wrap my mind around it. Right. And what exactly where it puts us as readers and again, who we're laughing at and why. And as soon as I'd been wrestling with that, I began to notice these other things. Look at what happens in this passage. This is Trillian, right? She's breaking in in the middle of the argument between Ford and Zaphod. Yes, I know there's a planet there. I'm not arguing with anyone. It's just that I wouldn't know Magrathia from any other lump of cold rock. Dawn's coming up if you want it. Okay, okay, muttered Zaphod. At least let's give our eyes a good time. Computer! Hi there! What can I... Just shut up and give us a view of the planet again. A dark, featureless mass once more filled the screens, the planet rolling away beneath them. They watched for a moment in silence, but Zaphod was fidgety with excitement. We are now traversing the night side, he said in a hushed voice. The planet rolled on. The surface of the planet is now three hundred miles beneath us, he continued. He was trying to restore a sense of occasion to what he felt should have been a great moment. Magrathia! He was piqued by Ford's skeptical reaction. Magrathia! In a few seconds, he continued, we should see there. The moment carried itself. Even the most seasoned star tramp can't help but shiver at the spectacular drama of a sunrise seen from space. But a binary sunrise is one of the marvels of the galaxy. Out of the utter blackness stabbed a sudden point of blinding light. It crept up by slight degrees and spread sideways in a thin crescent blade, and within seconds two suns were visible, furnaces of light, searing the black edge of the horizon with white fire. Fierce shafts of color streaked through the thin atmosphere beneath them. Um... What do you notice here? What's at issue here? Um, It's not just about a matter of facts, right? 
it's not just about does Magrathia exist or, or, or not exist. Again, it's not just Zephod and Ford having different opinions on an issue, right? Um, yeah, Mike, you noticed that too. Uh, whenever I see that, Mike, I get real suspicious, right? It re- that, 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 that's something to make me sit up and what Mike is observing. That last paragraph, the narrator is all eloquence and no jokes, as Mike says. See, Mike, all the way through that last paragraph, I'm waiting for the joke, right? Where's the joke? Where's the, surely the last sentence of the paragraph is going to contain the joke, right? With long build up and then bam at the end, right? That's, that's the Adams-ish style, right? Um, it doesn't come, right? Um, it doesn't come. The narrator is assisting Zaphod in, right? In capturing the moment? Except, wait, what is it capturing? What is the narrator capturing? What is the, what is being built up in that, um, uh, what is being built up in that paragraph? Yes, Caden, exactly. The sunrise. The sunrise. What is not being built up in this paragraph? I mean, what they're seeing is awesome, right? What makes it awesome? Magrathia, right? Exactly, Patrick. That's what... The identity of the planet, Caden, exactly. So, there are two ways in which this could be awesome, right? Awesome just as in the sense of giving our eyes a good time, right? They are seeing something beautiful. A sunrise in space. But it could be sunrise over any planet, right? And certainly any planet in a binary system, you could get the same effect from. And it's an awesome effect, right? Hey, totally worth pausing, apparently, to take in. But it has nothing to do with Magrathia, right? Look at Zaphod's emphasis. He was trying to restore a sense of occasion to what he felt should have been a great moment. Magrathia! He was piqued by Ford's skeptical reaction. Magrathia! It's that one-word exclamation. That's where the awe should be. They should be looking down on this planet to say, that is Magrathia, right? I mean, again... Go with trillions, right? Imagine you're they're on a ship, right? And he's pointing at this island and saying, Atlantis! If you were looking at Atlantis, if the sun is rising behind Atlantis, right? You're approaching Atlantis from the west, right? And you're looking at the gorgeous sunrise, and your whole focus is like, wow, the sun looks so beautiful rising over that island. You're missing the point, right? The point, the much bigger, and yeah, the sunrise, it's awesome, right? But clearly much less awesome than the fact that that island is Atlantis, right? It's the mythic power of the identity of the planet that Zaphod wants to make a big deal out of, right? Zaphod is using the sunset as a way to restore, like, the gravitas of the occasion. And the narrator seems to be going along with him, but what the narrator is not doing is building up the mythic force of the uh, the concept that that planet is Magrathia, 
right? Notice how it also we're pointed to this in Trillian's first comment, right? I wouldn't know Magrathia from any other lump of cold rock. That's exactly the question, right? That's, that's the thing that is really at issue, in a sense, or at least one of the things at issue, in the debate between Ford and Zaphod. Is this Magrathia, or is it just any other lump of cold rock? If it's any other lump of cold rock, then it's not important, right? Lovely sunset, right? That's great. But again, it, it could be, you could see it anywhere in the galaxy. Um, always appreciated whenever you find it, but it's just a lump of cold rock. Or is it Magrathia, the most improbable planet in the galaxy, right? Have, has he found the true legend? Um, so this is one of the things that strikes me in this passage, that the issue is, is this a, a, an important mythic moment or is it not? Right. Remember, I didn't quote this. So I, I, I didn't want to do the entire passage. I didn't want to go all exploring the Lord of the Rings on this. Um, but there's another short paragraph right around here, like right after this, when when they're looking at this at, at the sunrise, where we get the narrator telling us what Ford is thinking, and Ford is annoyed at Zaphod. He's annoyed at Zaphod for the whole Magrathia. He's like, can't we just enjoy? the beauty of the sunset, and the comparison he makes is, can't we say, can't, can't, can't you just be content with observing that the garden is beautiful without having to say that there's fairies in it? Like, just ditch the whole fairy thing, right? By saying, oh, there's fairies in the garden, does not, to Ford, make it more beautiful, right? He's just annoyed and distracted by that whole thing. Why? Because he doesn't believe in fairies, Right? Um, he doesn't think that the idea that this planet is Magrathia adds anything to the beauty and splendor of this occasion because he doesn't believe that it's Magrathia, right? Um, but again, that's the whole question. Is this a powerful mythic moment or not? Now, the answer, of course, is yes, it is. That actually is Magrathia. So finding this kind of is a big deal. Zaphod really has found Atlantis. Okay. But it's not just about who's right and who's wrong. Zaphod or Ford. That question gets established fairly quickly after that. But it's not the end of the debate. Again, the real question for me in this passage, as before, is where are we, the readers? How are we being positioned? Um... And that's why I was so interested in noticing this question of... Um, <laughs> I, I, sorry, Tolkien geek moment. I couldn't help but think of the, uh, the epigraph to, uh, 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 to Tolkien's poem, Mythopoeia, right? Um, Philomythus to Mysomythus. Right, uh, that is myth lover to myth hater is literally what those uh, fake names translate to. Um, does this is the story as Magrathia is presented to us? Is it being presented to? Are we being prompted uh, to react in a uh, mythophilic or 
um, well, mythophilic and mythophobic would be, but that doesn't work. In a philomythic or a misomythic uh, uh, way, are we resistant to the myth and we're puncturing that? We're 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 kind of keeping it non-mythical, right? Or are we supposed to? Is 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 the the effect of 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 awe that perception of the mythic something that's supposed to be part of our experience here? Where are we as readers? Um, let's um, let's keep going. Because it's not just a question, really, in the end, about Ford versus Zephod. Um This is now towards the tail end of the debate here. Um, well, even supposing it is, this is Ford speaking there. Well, even supposing it is, Magrathea, that is. It is, said Zaphod, which it isn't, continued Ford. What do you want with it anyway? There's nothing there. Not on the surface, said Zaphod. All right, just supposing there's something. I take it you're not here for the sheer industrial archaeology of it all. What are you after? One of Zaphod's heads looked away. The other one looked round to see what the first was looking at, but it wasn't looking at anything very much. Well, said Zaphod airily, it's partly the curiosity, partly a sense of adventure, but mostly I think it's the fame and the money. Ford glanced at him sharply. He got a very strong impression that Zaphod hadn't the faintest idea why he was there at all. You know, I don't like the look of that planet at all, said Trillian, shivering. Ah, take no notice, said Zaphod. With half the wealth of the former galactic empire stored on it somewhere, it can afford to look frumpy. Now, in the debate, it is Magrathea, it's not Magrathea. I have found Atlantis. No, it's just a cold lump of rock, right? It seems like Zaphod is the one who is pro-myth, right? And Ford is the one who is anti-myth, right? He 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 is very resistant to the idea that there could be a real mythic significance to this particular lump of rock, right? Whereas Zaphod seems to be in support of it. Um. But look at what happens. It's partly the curiosity, partly a sense of adventure, but mostly I think it's the fame and the money. Zaphod doesn't get the mythic sense either, right? He is he wants to make sure that Ford acknowledges that it really is Magrathea because he thinks it's a big deal, right? But it does Zaphod feel awe towards this planet? No. No. I don't think so at all. I don't think so at all, right? What he says is, he's just in it for the money. He thinks there's probably cash. He's going to get rich and famous from discovering this, right? So it's not about awe. It's not about, like, not even really, like, I will be the one who discovers Atlantis. Instead, it's just like, I'm going to get real famous because I'm the one who discovered Atlantis. That's not the same thing, right? He seems to be, in fact, quite tone deaf, right? Um... Again, going back to earlier when it sounded like he wanted to, like, this should be a great moment, right? My first temptation is to read that as him being like, guys, you're not feeling this, right? This is a big deal. We're in the presence of Magrathea, right? Magrathea, exclamation point, right? That seems like, like, hey, you guys are missing the point, 
right? The mythic significance of this moment. But it turns out now, no, no, that's not what he was saying at all, right? Actually, what he was saying is you're not making a big deal of the fact that I achieved this thing, right? You've not yet grasped how bloody rich and famous I am going to be since I did this thing, right? Um, exactly, exactly. Patricia, he's looking forward to the talk show uh, uh, circuit, absolutely. Uh, the moment of his own greatness, Tara, absolutely, exactly. He's thinking about himself. He's not thinking about Magrathea itself. He has no sense of the mythic, right? And notice how that gets immediately underscored, right? Look at the two responses immediately after his bald statement of, you know, his own, like, mundane and mercenary interest in Magrathea, right? When he says that, Ford glances at him sharply. He got a very strong impression that Zaphod hadn't the faintest idea why he was there at all, right? Now, I'm not saying that this is Ford being suddenly converted to the mythic significance of Magrathea, but it is interesting to me that the immediate response to uh, Zaphod saying, oh yeah, whatever, it's not, about the, it's not about the mythic significance, it's about the cash, right? The immediate response to that is a very ambiguous, very open, very mysterious sense that there's something bigger going on here, right? Um, again, this is not Ford getting the mythic significance of Magrathea, but it's actually kind of starting to move in that direction. The very acknowledgement that there's something more than meets the eye going on here, right? begins to push exactly Mike Moore says uh, perhaps Zaphod was meant to find it exactly exactly um, that same kind of mythic significance that Gandalf points to with Frodo there precisely precisely um, uh, and Mike actually that's a really wonderful parallel think about that converse that moment in that conversation in chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring right Frodo has just made an, made a joke about Bilbo finding the ring right um, when he's um, uh, Gandalf has just uh, uh, you know, refer- has, has been talking about the story of the ring and then talking about Bilbo finding it and then uh, Frodo makes his joke what, just in time to meet Bilbo? wouldn't an orc have suited it better? right? and again the implication of Frodo's joke is that story is pre- he's trying he's resistant to the story because he doesn't want to believe that it's true right because um, if it's true it means that he has the ring of power which is very uncomfortable so um, he's resistant to it uh, so it's like no it's surely it can't be like that right it can't be he's trying to downplay the significance right that couldn't have been this mythically portentous moment right it's too absurd and then Gandalf reasserts it forcibly right. I can put it no clearer than to say that Bilbo was meant to find it, right? Yes, that uh, that moment of Bilbo putting his hand on it blindly in the dark is full of awe-inspiring mythic significance, right? Um, and Stephen, no, it's not a comforting thought. Uh, that's the whole point, right? Uh, Frodo is uncomforted uh, by the fact that that moment turns out to have been really... Uh, really significant, right? But again, so that I, I, so Mike, I, I know you're 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 joking. I think it's that that's that it's really good. But I actually do think that that's an instructive parallel, uh, really. Um, the very fact that Frodo that I almost called him Frodo, that Ford uh, is now thinking um, 
there is something other, something else going on here. And then the next sentence. You know, I don't like the look of that planet at all, said Trillian, shivering. Right? Remember Trillian, she wouldn't know Magrathea from any, you know, from a cold lump of rock. Right? Magrathea means nothing to her. The name does not evoke... It's... it's Ford is resistant to the mythic significance of Magrathea, but he recognizes it, right? I mean, Magrathea is a legend. So if this planet were actually Magrathea, that would be... He'd have to acknowledge that was a big deal, right? It's not a big deal to Trillian. She's barely ever heard of it, right? Um, and so she's like, I, 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 you know, I couldn't tell the difference between Magrathea and a regular cold lump. But now she, who couldn't tell the difference, right, who wouldn't know Magrathea from any other lump of rock, is now looking at this lump of rock and for no reason suddenly having a bad feeling about this, right? She doesn't like the look of this planet at all. Captain, I'm frightened. <laughs> See, I was comparing Trillian uh, to Han Solo rather than going with uh, with uh, uh, Uhura because it seemed a little bit more dignified. But um, uh, but anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, Joyce, hang on. Joyce, you're speculating about why Zaphod was meant uh, to come here, uh, and how and why this was arranged. Um, but, but wait, we don't have enough data on that yet. We'll come around to that, right? Um, but, uh, but I step back from this passage and I say, notice what's happening here. What we're getting is we're being pushed in both ways again, right? Um, just as we're, we're, we're having an incre- increasing reasons to think that maybe Zaphod is right, maybe this is really Magrathia, and so having the sort of awe-inspired mythic response to this moment, Zaphod himself undermines it, right? So we're, like, starting to incline in the mythic direction, and then we come back, right? But then we immediately start being like, well, hang on, maybe something is going on here after all. Maybe there is something strange and special about this planet. It doesn't let us settle in. And Mike, as you're, as you're, as you say, no jokes, no jokes for pages. Yeah. Um, the narrator isn't making jokes. The people aren't making jokes, right? Um, Zaphod is making, you know, I mean, he, he's making a crack here, right? About how the, you know, the planet can afford to look frumpy, right? Um, but again, that's just another expression that he does not feel awe towards the... Even though he believes it's Magrathea, he's not in awe of Magrathea, right? Um, he can kind of make light of it in that way. But yeah, we're not invited to laugh at this, right? So again, where are we? Where are we? Are we supposed to be in awe of Magrathea or not, right? Um, and we get Marvin. We're down on the planet now. Come on, insisted Zaphod. I found a way in. In? said Arthur in horror. I think Arthur is horrified because, out of context, he thinks that Zaphod is suggesting he's found a way into the dead whale. I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking is part of Arthur's horror here. Um, as Because then Zaphod immediately clarifies. Into the interior of the planet. An underground passage. The force of the whale's impact cracked it open. And that's where we have to go. 
where no man has trod these five million years into the very depths of time itself. Marvin started his ironical humming again. Zaphod hit him, and he shut up. With little shudders of disgust, they all followed Zaphod down the incline into the crater, trying very hard to avoid looking at its unfortunate creator. Life, said Marvin dolefully. Loathe it or ignore it. You can't like it. Um... Yeah. Well, see, well, okay, hang on. So David is saying that he read Chulian's reaction as a sort of horror movie response. Let's not land on the ghost planet full of nothing but dead people. Maybe no mythic significance. But see, David, there is mythic Even in that, there's mythic, there's mythic significance. Um, to feel creeped out at the presence of of like in the in a spot where millions of people were lying buried d- dead people were lying buried that's a mythic response right um i that's um yeah yeah that's that's um i the, it's it, it's it's a different kind of myth right different than the awe of finding atlantis or finding magrathea um but it's still more than the sort of crudely practical and material response that Zaphod has, right? Let's loot the planet because there's a, I'm going to get rich and famous for finding it. And then B, there also might be loot. Let's go, let's go find it. Right. The fact that he does not have any kind of, uh, sense of eeriness of it shows that Trillian has a different, uh, um, has a different, uh, um, sensitivity to the things. Um, okay, so d- let me let me make sure make sure it's clear that you know what I mean when I'm talking about the mythic significance. I'm not here necessarily referring to a particular meaning or a particular theme. Back to the the garden and the fairies, or the sunrise over the island of Atlantis, right? Um, there's a difference between coming to an island, well, you know, you're, you're an explorer, right? You're on a sailing ship. You come across an island in the middle of the Pacific, uh, and you, and it's a, it's an awesome island, right? It's completely gorgeous. And you're, you know, it's like, I was just in Hawaii, right? I I know, I I know of what I speak, right? You know, so you you go to, and you're just like, wow, this, this place is awesome, right? This is a really great island. It's really comfortable here. I'd quite like to build a summer home here, right? Um, That is having a response to the island, which is not mythic, right? It can be appreciative, right? It can be aesthetic, right? You can appreciate the beauty of it, but it's, there's nothing mythic in that. It's, practical. Even, even, even its aestheticism is practical in a sense, right? Again, you can, you can respond to the beauty of it, but you're not, there's no, there's nothing else, right? But if instead somebody tells you when you're, when you see this island and you're observing how beautiful it is and thinking how much you might like to build a summer home there, if somebody tells you, or if you suddenly, you know, as you're walking around, come across a ruin uh, which leads you to conclude that this is the lost island of Atlantis. Now you feel differently, right? It hasn't changed your your aesthetic judgment, right? It's still just as beautiful. It's not more beautiful than it was before, right? Um, it's not 
less suitable um, for um, uh, for a summer home, right? But it has this significance, this the idea of Atlantis, that it is Atlantis, has a kind of which inspires awe, right? And other things, right? But it's uh, so when I talk about mythic significance, that's what I'm talking about. That that sense of something more, right? Something more than practical value, something more even than aesthetic value, something even more than just it being attractive, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Ian, yeah, that's another good example, Ian. Like if you, you know, you go, you're, you're in the desert and you find a, you, you go to this big city, right? And you're wandering around the city and you're like, hey, hey look, there's this really interesting Middle Eastern city. And then after you get there, you find that it's Jerusalem, right? Now, there is a mythic significance. There are many mythic significances to Jerusalem, and lots of people will respond to that in lots of different ways, but it's more than just a city in the Middle East, right? Whatever you think of it, it's more than just any other city, right? There is a mythic... There's There are mythic associations with it. Again, it's, it's important. Uh, certainly, Patricia, yes, greater than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. Um... So, again, my question is, um, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll give a third example, right? Um, visiting Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right? Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is a cute little town, right? And it's quite lovely. But when I'm standing in this big field right outside of Gettysburg and thinking, aren't these trees and hills lovely, right? They're not made more lovely by the fact that I know I am standing on the hill that Pickett's Charge was climbing up, or that I'm standing on the hill, um, uh, you know, that the, 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 you know, the main regiment charged down. Uh, you know, I, 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 it doesn't change the surroundings, but it's it has a greater significance. I'm standing in a field which looks a lot like many other fields that I've stood in, right? And yet there's this sense of awe to it, right? Because it's Gettysburg, right? Um, okay, so that's what I'm talking. Just I just want, just want to clarify that. I know it's easy to kind of talk in house about this kind of thing, especially since you know when we talk about Tolkien, you know Tolkien talks about myth a lot. When we talk about Tolkien, we talk about myth a lot. But I don't want to take too much for granted here uh, in talking about that. So thanks for. Um, pulling me up on that, Carita. All right. Here, we get a similar kind of thing, right? Um, look at Zaphod's words. Where no man has trod these five million years into the very depths of time itself. Right? Um, yeah. A good, yeah. A, a, a couple people in both chats, actually, have uh, compared... Magrathia to El Dorado. I think that's a that's another good comparison, actually. In some ways, better than Atlantis, right? Because there's treasure involved. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice what happens as soon as the text begins to modulate into that mythic mode, right? And you hear it, right? where no man has trod these five million years into the very depths of time itself. You hear the difference between that and into the interior of the planet, an underground passage. The force of the whale's impact cracked it open, and that's where we have to go. 
right? Very matter of fact, very practical, right? He's after loot, and this is the way that we can get it, right? But then all of a sudden, the shift, where no man has trod these five million years. Trod. That's very different. It's not the kind of, that's not the, the sort of word choice Zaphod normally uses, right? Where no man has trod these five million years into the very depths of time itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Patricia is hearing to boldly go where no man has gone before. And of course, it would not be surprising if you were hearing that since the narrator just made a joke about that earlier on, right? Um, uh, no, it wasn't the narrator. It was the writer of the guide who made that joke, actually. Um, but um, anyway, I agree. But, but, but sorry, Patricia, I wanted to come back to that. The parallel to the opening sequence, your parallel to the opening sequence of, uh, of Star Trek is perfectly just, right? That is precisely the tone that James Tiberius Kirk is speaking in, right? Um, the whole point is that, um, the whole point is that Kirk's voiceover is trying to give you a sense of the significance of this, right? Um, you could imagine a voiceover which creates the opposite effect, right? This is the story of a bunch of people kind of like going around space and occasionally getting into trouble, uh, sometimes seducing things and, and squabbling with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and like the security guys who wear red uh, dying regularly. Um, you could make a voiceover which makes the whole thing sound banal and not even very interesting, right? The whole point of Kirk's narration is to make it sound grand, right? It's five-year mission, right? <laughs> That's exactly the tone that um, Zephod is adopting here. So wait a second. So does Zephod get it? And David here, I agree with you. David says that Zephod's commentary maybe doesn't suggest that he actually gets it. It's almost like he's narrating his own documentary. Yeah, he's trying to establish why this is a big moment, Right. I, I agree. I don't think that he is he is feeling the awe of Magrathea. I think he's making a big deal of his own discovery, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but Jennifer, exactly. Um, <laughs> James Stevens says he can imagine uh, that Marvin is actually ironically humming the theme to Star Trek. That would be really funny, actually. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> okay, James, I think that's what I'm going to picture, actually. Uh, but anyway, um, so, but as Jennifer reminds us, and this is, Jennifer, exactly what struck me, too, as soon as, Zephod does not get one sentence out in that grandiose sort of mythic mode, right? Without being interrupted and being undermined, right? As Marvin starts to hum ironically. Um, clearly undermining and making fun of this tone into which Zephod has, uh, um, has, has, you know, has started, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Good. Veronica says it's ironic because uh, it, it would be ironic because uh, uh, Kirk is talking about exploration and Zaphod is talking about exploitation. Uh, yeah, that's very good, Veronica. That's excellent. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, but um, and even the even the mere fact that um, uh, uh, even the mere fact that Zaphod has to interrupt himself to smack Marvin. Right? I mean, the moment is gone. Uh, so what is the effect of that? Again, two things. On the one hand, we are reminded of the significance of it. Just in case we lose sight of it, just in case we're following and thinking like, okay, now we're going to tunnels underneath the cold lump of rock. Right? We, the readers, have been reminded this is not just a cold lump of rock right? that they are climbing into. They are... They are walking on land that no man has trod in these five these five million years right there's a there's a significance to that right ooh big deal right so on um, first we're reminded of that even if zaphod is not sincere right even if zaphod is not himself totally getting it and still just pumping himself up we hear it we feel it and we're reminded as we see them going into the going into the tunnels that this is a big deal, and yet immediately it's undermined, right? So at the same time, or immediately after each other, the story has first recalled us to the mythic perspective and immediately undermined the mythic perspective. It won't let us settle down there. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, hey! Don't trouble me with things about what Marvin is actually humming. First of all, I don't want you to pierce my bubble, and as I'm imagining him humming uh, the uh, original Star Trek uh, uh, music, but also, we'll talk about that when we get to the when we get to the radio broadcast. Right? It will be relevant then. But in the book, we have no cues. All we're told is that it's ironical humming, right? Um, anyway, okay, all right. Um, oh, so, okay, last thing. Um, Marvin's comment about life, right? Um, the sort of final voice um, the kind of final voice of the you know sort of the final note of this passage is Marvin's extremely cynical comment about life which like life is kind of a big deal right um, and yet life is a splattered all over the crater right uh, and then B undermined emphatically by Marvin, right? Loathe it or ignore it, you can't like it. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, the question I keep finding myself asking is, so okay, where does that leave us? Right? Where are we here? Are we philomythic or are we misomythic? Um, what direction is the story pushing us? The story mind 
not Adams. I don't care what his intentions are. I don't care what he was thinking. I'm saying, where's the story pushing us? Um, and the things that we've been doing here tonight, this is how I try to answer that question. All right, let's keep going. Another passage from the guide. Uh, this is the passage from the guide that Arthur is reading while he is waiting, standing guard outside the tunnel, right? Um, and it's telling the story about that dude, Viet uh, um, Vujigig, uh, and his theory about missing ballpoint pens. Somewhere in the cosmos, he said, he being Viet Vujigig, Uh, Along with all the planets inhabited by humanoids, reptiloids, fishoids, walking treoids, and super-intelligent shades of the color blue, there was also a planet entirely given over to ballpoint life-forms. And it was to this planet that unattended ballpoints would make their way, slipping away quietly through wormholes in space to a world where they knew they could enjoy a uniquely ballpointoid lifestyle responding to highly ballpoint-oriented stimuli, and generally leading the ballpoint equivalent of the good life. Now, let's pause for a second. I love this passage, right? Um, uh... think about the... What is this passage describing? What is Viet Vujigig's theory? We have what seems on the surface to be an extremely mundane and wholly uninteresting phenomenon. Right? The fact that lots of people forget where they put their pens. Right? Um, and we have that mundane, totally mundane phenomenon, and we have this guy, Viet Vujigig, who suggests a theory which is altogether remarkable, right? Which suggests that beneath the surface, beneath the apparently mundane surface, everybody thinks they just forget where they put their ballpoint pens. But what really happens is quite remarkable, right? That these unattended ballpoint pens pass through, quietly pass away through wormholes in space and go to the great and legendary ballpoint pen planet, right? Where they live this otherwise unimaginable ballpoint pen life in ballpoint pen paradise, right? Um... Jonathan says, now if he'd been writing about socks, everyone would have believed him. Right? Um, Exactly. Exactly. Um, Now, this is funny. And this is clearly meant to be funny at his expense. Edvit Vujigis. No one believes him. Right? This is all being described, it seems, as a way to emphasize how crazy Vit Vujigig is. And yet, notice something. Right? This great, the writer of this guide entry who's making fun of Viet Vujigig for his theory about the ballpointoid planet, right? Um, 
would probably also disbelieve in Magrathea. In fact, he might be the same, very same person, for all we knew, who wrote that in this enlightened age no one believes a word of it. Right? Um, it's a funny idea. It's a mythic idea. There is, it, it's, this is a, a theory that grants mythic significance to the loss of, you didn't just lose your pen. Your pen escaped and went home to the magical paradise, which is the ultimate home and destiny of all ballpoint pens, right? Now your loss of your pen has a mythic significance. Now when you thought you just put your pen down there and now you can't find where it was, right? Now it's not just annoying. Now it's, there's splendor attached to it, right? Again, it's about myth. So this mythic theory, but this is a crazy mythic theory about ballpoint-oid lifestyles, right? And as theories go, this was all very fine and pleasant. Oh, by the way, when did Viet Vujigig come up with this theory? I didn't, I didn't quote that part, but right before, does anybody remember? Right before the passage I've quoted here starts, um, what was the day on which he... Uh, uh, came up with this theory? Or rather, what happened the night before he came up with this theory? Anybody remember? He was drinking. Yes. More. What was he drinking? Good. Yes. He was drinking pangoactic gargle blasters with Zephod Beeblebrox. Right? All right. Um, once again, Zephod Bibelbrox is at the center of this mythic thing, right? Okay. And as theories go, this was all very fine and pleasant until Viet Vujigig suddenly claimed to have found this planet and to have worked there for a while, driving a limousine for a family of cheap green retractables, whereupon he was taken away, locked up, wrote a book, and was finally sent into tax exile, which is the usual fate reserved for those who are determined to make fools of themselves in public. Okay, so him devising this theory of the mythic significance of the escape of pens and of the, you know, the mythic ballpoint planet, that was all fine, right? It was a fun idea. We enjoy thinking about the ballpoint planet. Um, exactly as, uh, Karina, exactly as you're saying, it makes you happy for your pens, right? That's, the, that's, that's exactly it, right? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely, it's a fine and pleasant theory. But when that myth, if there's a chance that that myth is going to become a fact, right? If that myth turns out to be real, that's a big deal, right? And when he asserts that it is, and that he's been there, then he must be crazy, right? Then we should lock him up. That is making a fool of himself uh, in public, right? Him coming up with the idea wasn't making a fool of himself in public. Saying that it's real, that's making a fool of himself in public. Okay, so it's okay to tell stories, just like it's okay to tell your kids stories about Magrathea if you want them to grow up and become economists, right? 
But it's not okay to actually believe that you could find Magrathia or to believe that you have found Magrathia. That's why if you're Ford Prefect, you're resistant to this, right? Um, because you could be, you know, like basically Zephod Bibelbrox is kind of making himself into v- Vujigik here. Which is odd because it is Zephod Bibelbrox who made Vit Vujigig into Vit Vujigig, right? As it happens. And remember, Arthur Dent is standing on the lost planet of Magrathia as he's reading this entry, right? Okay. When one day an expedition was sent to the spatial coordinates that Vujigig had claimed for this planet, they discovered only a small asteroid inhabited by a solitary old man who claimed repeatedly that nothing was true, though he was later discovered to be lying. <laughs> that, by the way, is one of my favorite jokes. In the, I, 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 I never, it never fails to make me laugh out loud, that one. Um... A solitary old man who claimed repeatedly that nothing was true, though he was later discovered to be lying. Nothing was true, right? When they go to the place to confirm whether or not this myth which Viet Vujigig claimed, and I'm going to say that name as often as I can because it's such a fun name to say, Viet Vujigig. Um, anyway, uh, this myth that Viet Vujigig claimed to be true, they go to confirm whether or not it's true, right? And when they get there, what do they find? Somebody who says that everything is, is that nothing is true, right? Who denies not myth, not the fact of that myth, but all fact, right? Nothing is true. But of course, later it, later it turned out, he turned out to be lying about that. Right? So he's lying about the fact that nothing is true. So what does that add up to? So wait. Have we... Have we confirmed or denied the... the ballpoint planet? Right? They didn't find it at those coordinates. But yeah, James, exactly. The logical conclusion is that something is true. Right? And for all we know, it could be the the thing about the so but but is it the thing about the ballpoint planet that's true there did however remain the question of both the mysterious 60,000 altarian dollars paid yearly into into his Brandis Vogan bank account and of course Zephod Bibelbrox's highly profitable second-hand ballpoint business So we end with Viet Vujigig is probably crazy. But there are these two facts that are hard to explain. Right? He, Viet Vujigig, I assume it's his bank account, right? Viet Vujigig receives 60,000 Altarian dollars a year, right? For some mysterious reason. What's the implication? Where does... Where does Viet Vujigig get 60,000 Altarian dollars a year? And, yeah, Mike, I'm, I'm a little confused there. I, the, the pronoun is uncertain. Um, his. Whose. I mean, the last masculine individual 
right? Third person masculine who was third person masculine singular who was referred to is the old man who later just was later discovered to be lying, right? Um, so is it that guy who claimed that nothing was true? Is it that guy who's receiving $60,000 a year? Or is it Viet Vujigig who's receiving $60,000 a year? I'm not really sure. Um, I think it, for my purposes, could be either one of them, frankly. Um, who's paying them? Based on what we have, who's paying them? got to be say five Bibelbrox, doesn't it? And yeah, the implication is that Zephod Bibelbrox found the planet where all of the ballpoint pens end up and is exploiting it for cash. Right? And uh, has arranged payment to hush it up so that nobody else finds it and thus breaks his monopoly on second point ballpoint pens. Right? Um, once again, Zaphod is on the cutting edge of discovering that myth is real. And yet again, Zaphod is wholly uninterested in its mythic significance and just exploits it for money. Right? His interest in the mythic thing is entirely mundane. Right? See, James, ex- I, I, I do think it could work either way. Either he's paying the old man... Uh, to, like, be there when they found him and so that he could throw them off the scent, or he's paying Vujigig to give the wrong coordinates of the planet. Uh, that's how I read it, James. That, or, that's kind of my preferred reading. I think that one works a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, and, of course, Zephod's actions towards the ballpoint planet are especially... disturbing, right? They're sort of especially counter to the mythic significance. I mean, again, think of the mythic significance. You arrive at this planet, right? Um, I talked about how this theory of Viet Vujigig grants a mythic significance to the loss of your pen, right? It didn't, it's not, I didn't just misplace it. It has gone home, right? And similarly, when you come to this planet and you're like, it is the secret paradise of all ballpoint pens. This is the home to which every ballpoint pen that has ever gone missing has found its way, right? I have found, like, the island of unwanted toys, right? This is it. Um, and not only to have your response be, and I'm going to make a killing on this, but, but given the fact that part of the mythic significance of that island in the first place is the idea of this, like, lost paradise of pens, right? That, like, your pens literally have gone home, they've gone to a better place, and that he finds them and takes them and, and what, like, captures them and sells them into slavery again, essentially, right? I mean, that's really kind of horrible. Um, right. James Good, exactly. And, of course, there's another reading, if we take one step further back from this, the whole theory that Viet Vujigig was saying in the first place came after he was drinking with Zephod Bibelbrox. So it is entirely possible that the entire thing 
that Veet Vujigig was a pawn from the beginning to drum up publicity for his secondhand ballpoint pen business. Um, entirely possible, James. Entirely possible, right? Again, in a different book, in a different part of the book, we might have thought that, right? We might have been quicker to think that, let me say. But as he's reading this passage, Arthur Dent is standing on Magrathea, right? On the lost island of Magrathea. Um, so if that turns out to be true, if it turns out to be true that the whole thing was one big elaborate cell, right? One big elaborate con by Zephod Bibelbrox, um, then that itself is deeply ironic because he's doing the exact same thing again, except this time the myth is real. It's really Magrathea. Zephod Bibelbrox right now, while Arthur Dent is reading this, is literally walking where no living man has walked for five million years, right? Um, yeah. I love the ballpoint pen uh, story. Um, and what it kind of reminded me of, and this is fairly random, uh, when you're reading this book, it's really tempting to overlook the quotations from the Hitchhiker's Guide. It's not that you'd skip them, you know, like unenlightened people skip the poems uh, in The Lord of the Rings um, or The Hobbit. It's not like that. But it's easy to fall into the habit of thinking this is, it's just comic relief, right? So we interrupt this narrative at this particular moment to hear a random comical story from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? And, th- and then after this, we return to the story. And to think of it as that, it's just comic relief. It is comic relief, right? Uh, it is comedy, right? And it is, and it interrupts the story. So it's, it is definitely, but it's not just comic relief, right? When we actually pay attention to what the story is about and look at it in the context of where it's placed in this story, we see it's very deeply relevant. It very closely echoes the situation that it's in. And the thing that it reminds me of is the clowns in Shakespeare's tragedies or comedies, right? Um, Admit it. When you were reading Shakespeare in high school and you got to one of those random scenes, like you're trying, you know, you're following the plot of the play and then there's this random scene in which nothing happens except these clowns come out and make jokes and then they leave. And it seemed, it doesn't, move the story forward at all, right? Nothing substantive has happened. They've just, like, made some jokes. And you're tempted to say, oh, it's just comic relief, right? Um, That was just... That's just there to, like, make the groundlings laugh and keep them interested. Now we're back to the story, right? That's almost never the case, right? What the clowns do and the things that they talk about are almost always important. In fact, like, often it's there that... Shakespeare really kind of tips his hand and points to what's really important, right? They give us, often, um, those scenes with the fools, with the clowns in Shakespeare's plays can kind of point us towards 
what's important, what we should be paying attention to when we return back um, uh, to the story. And I find, again, it's not, it's not an exact parallel, um, but, but again, I, this, this to me is a classic example of something that's really quite like that. Um, so easy to dismiss the whole elaborate ballpoint pen joke as just a, a comic gag uh, inserted into the story because Douglas Adams has no self-control, <laughs> right? I mean, you can easily make that argument. I can imagine people making that argument. Um, uh, that he can't resist just throwing in another sort of long joke. But I find, when I look at it, that's not, in fact, how it operates. Um, so again, where are we here? Where does the story leave us, the readers? Another example. Uh, this is Arthur and his new friend uh, from Magrathea, right? Magrathea awakes. It's pretty good, right? As sentences go, first of all, it's real short. <laughs> and we know Adams' love for long sentences, right? But think about that. That's another one of those sort of mythic statements, right? Magrathea awakes. Okay, right? So this planet which has lying dormant for five million years, the legendary planet, the, the richest planet in the history of the galaxy, which has been asleep for five million years, is awakening, right? Big deal, right? It's like, ooh. Arthur shivered involuntarily as he seated himself next to the old man, right? Arthur feels it. The strangeness of it, the silent bobbing movement of the craft as it soared into the night sky quite unsettled him. He looked at the old man, his face illuminated by the dull glow of tiny lights on the instrument panel. "'Excuse me,' he said to him. "'What is your name, by the way?' "'My name?' said the old man, and the same distant sadness came into his face again. He paused. "'My name,' he said, "'is Slarty Bartfast.' Arthur practically choked. "'I beg your pardon?' he spluttered. "'Slarty Bartfast,' repeated the old man quietly." "'Slarty Bartfast!' "'The old man looked at him gravely. "'I said it wasn't important,' he said. "'The air car sailed through the night.'" Um, yeah, the spluttering of Arthur is a really good cue for us there, James. Um, he's done it again, right? We have this build-up. Magrathea awakes. Arthur shivering, right? His sense of the moment. Um, even that sentence, he looked at the old man, his face illuminated by the dull glow of tiny lights on the instrument panel, right? Um, this, the old man that he meets, he is like the representative of Magrathea itself, right? It's like, he is Magrathea awakening. Um, you know, in him we meet Magrathea personified, right? Um... And again, the build-up. My name, said the old man, and the same distant sadness came into his face again. What's going to come next, right? Uh, what will be revealed when he gives his name, right? What is the ancient sadness which is connected, which may perhaps be disclosed by the revelation of his name, 
right? The name of the old man who has lain asleep for five million years. My name, he said. Notice the cadence. My name, said the old man, and the same distant sadness came into his face again. He paused. My name, he said. That second he said is totally unnecessary. He paused. He said, right? It just builds up the tension, right? It makes... It builds up the suspense for the reveal. It makes... It gives us the the impression, just through the cadence of the sentence, uh, it leads us to expect something significant, something great. My name, he said, is Slarty Bartfast. Why is that funny? Why does Arthur choke? Why is he spluttering and choking? Uh, I'm going to go out on a whim here. I rather doubt that had J.R.R. Tolkien lived to hear The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio broadcasts, uh, I rather doubt that J.R.R. Tolkien would have enjoyed them very much. But I think that he would have laughed at that line. This strikes me as a very Tolkienian kind of joke. Tolkienian in the sense that the humor is almost entirely a phono-aesthetic humor. Is his name a rude word? No, not quite, right? Not exactly. This is why I was defending the Vogon poetry. Adams has a really good ear for nonsense words. He does a great job of capturing what he wants to capture just through the random, not not the non-random, right, collocation of phonemes. He puts together a nonsense word that does something, right? Um, Slarty Bartfast. And I, you, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious. Uh, of course, to an American, it would sound like Slarty... I, I, the the A at the end would be the 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 unpleasant American ah right we'd have to say fast at the end slarty bart fast slarty bart fast is a little bit funny but I think it's funnier uh, if uh, all three of the A's have the same sound which is how it sounds um, when somebody English reads it slarty bart fast. Um, I, so uh, that strikes me as like the correct way that should be pronounced. Not only because, of course, Adams was himself English, but um, uh, I, I, that just that it, it sounds to me sort of more more right. Um, it's an exceptionally undignified name, Kimber, and it's the thing which is so amazing about it to me. He could have made any number of jokes here. Right, 
Because remember, he's from Magrathea. He himself, in his conversation with Arthur in the next couple chapters, is going to emphasize how he's kind of out of touch with, uh, you know, modern culture, right? So he could, he, Adams, could have named this character if he just wanted a comical name, right? He could have named him some, like a reference that we would recognize that would be funny, right? Kind of like on uh, Dameron, right? The island, which by a strange coincidence was named France. Um, he could have made a joke like that, right? And it's just a coincidence, it doesn't mean anything, right? So Slardy Bartfast's name could have been, you know, anything, right? It could have been something sort of rude and scatological, um, explicitly, but it's not. Instead, it's just a collection of phonemes that don't mean anything but sounds vaguely crude, right? I mean, it sounds like something vaguely scatological. Um, I... Yeah, yeah. Um, it it's perfect. It's perfect. I just love that name. Um, notice that Arthur can't even explain. He can't even verbalize why he finds the name funny, right? It just is funny. And then the punchline at the end. I said it wasn't important. Who's the joke on? Who are we laughing at here? Arthur, to some extent, right? I do think we're laughing at Arthur. But I think the joke is on us, too. If we got suckered into expecting a really grand, impressive name or title, right? Um, the whole build-up to there, yeah, David is just saying exactly the same thing. The joke's on the reader. We were built up to expect a big reveal, and it, it falls completely flat. Absolutely, yes, boomful, exactly. Our, our expectation of importance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so if we caught ourselves, if we found ourselves getting caught up in the mythic moment, Magrathia awakes. My name? My name is... Slarty Bartfast. Right. The letdown the joke's on us, right? Um, and I agree, Mike, uh, kind of him a little bit, too. It kind of makes it look, well, so like, what, what was that distant sadness about, right? We have no idea. Um, yeah. Patricia says, I fully expected him to be the essence of the planet. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He is Magrathir. He's like a personification, right? He is the representative Magrathian. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Evan, abs, that's a wonderful, wonderful parallel. It is exactly... Monty Python makes exactly the same kind of joke uh, uh, in the Holy Grail, right? There are some who call me Tim, 
right? Exactly the same joke, except they take it in a different direction, right? In uh, the direction that they they do the same thing with with the build up, right? I am an enchanter, right? Uh, there are some who call me, and you expect a big reveal, right? And then instead you get a really common name. In fact, he's just telling them his nickname. There are some people who call me Tim, right? Um, Adams does something different with it, right? Instead of making it a really common nickname instead of a grand and, and portentous name, um, instead he does something, again, which I think is far more subtle, and believe me, very rarely am I going to admit that somebody has made a joke that is better and more sophisticated than a joke that's made in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is one of the few uh, perfect uh, films ever filmed. Uh, of course, Princess Bride being one of the others. Um, but anyway, uh, th- but he does. His joke is better than the Tim the Enchanter joke. Um, that's a simple joke, right? Uh, you expected something legendary and extraordinary, and I just instead tell you something totally commonplace, right? This is better than totally commonplace. Um, absurd, but absurd in a in a in a um, in a like intangible way, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. We are coming to the end of our time. One more slide, though. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. We are not coming to the end of my slides. Uh, but that's okay. I This is the main thing I wanted to focus on today. So I will leave you with this last slide. So we've been, so we've been seeing this overall trend, right? Um, I hope you're willing to agree with me that this pattern that I've been pointing to, this pattern of observing sort of mythic buildup but continual undermining of that, right? And the way that we're getting that kind of pushed and then drawn back and undermined by different characters, right? Ford versus Zaphod and then Zaphod's own undermining and all this other stuff, right? So this whole wrestling with what exactly is our relationship to the story, what exactly is our relationship to Magrathea, right? What kind of story are we reading? What kind of response should we be having? Um, so I hope you agree with me that this pattern, A, exists, and B, is interesting. Uh, but here's the thing I want to leave you with. Stress and nervous tension are now serious social problems in all parts of the galaxy, and it is in order that this situation should not be in any way exacerbated that the following facts will now be revealed in advance. The planet in question is, in fact, the legendary Magrathea. The deadly missile attack shortly to be launched by an ancient automatic defense system will result merely in the breakage of three coffee cups and a mouse cage, the bruising of somebody's upper arm, and the untimely creation and sudden demise of a bowl of petunias and an innocent sperm whale. In order that some sense of mystery should still be preserved, no revelation will yet be made concerning whose upper arm sustains the bruise. This fact may safely be made the subject of suspense, since it is of no significance whatsoever. Now, here we have the narrator. You may be shocked that I have gone this far, right? I have gone... (laughs) I have gone through seven whole slides before I got to a long quotation of the narrator, right? Um,
Good. So, Caden, you're absolutely right. We can see in this passage, where does this passage leave us with the mythic question, right? And you see, and Caden is seeing uh, the way in which I see this as being relevant, right, to this theme that we've been looking at, this sort of pattern that I've been pointing to uh, throughout our session here tonight. Um, Adam, the, the suspense has been building up, right? We didn't know. This is the first time we're told for certain whether it is Magrathia or not, right? Who is right? Ford or Zaphod? Is Zaphod crazy? He's kind of crazy. Seems like he might be crazy, right? Um, you know, Trillian has a bad feeling about this. Is there a good reason for her to have a bad feeling about this, right? Um, so is, does, it, does this planet have myth- mythic significance or not? Um, the suspense, the mystery, the intrigue, and now we're just told, right? Um, now the narrator is explicitly going out of his way to remove any possibility of suspense, right? Um, right? That's mostly the effect. But wait, hang on. It's removing the suspense by confirming that the planet is Magrathia. And notice what he says. He doesn't just say, it, it is Magrathia, actually. It's not just a cold lump of rock. It's, it's totally Magrathia. He calls it the legendary Magrathia, right? Recalling to us the mythic importance of this. That planet about which Ford has heard legends and stuff, yeah, it's really that one, Right? Okay, so in undermining the suspense, he's building up the mythic thing, right? Um, I agree. A couple of you are making the point, and yes, Jennifer, uh, I too. When I was reading this, I, too, was thinking she does not get eaten by the eels at this time. Um, uh, Jennifer, it was funny. I don't know how many of you watched Stranger Things, the Netflix uh, um, show. I ended up getting permission from my wife to watch it by myself when it came out because I was super excited and, wanted, and, and like binge-watched it the first weekend, and she didn't have time free. So she gave me permission to watch it once by myself, which turned out to be useful because my wife hates surprises. She hates suspense. Um, mystery books are her favorite genre, and she reads the last chapter first every single time because she can't enjoy the story unless she knows what happens. Um, she is completely anti-suspense. Um, and so, Jennifer, I, I made... Uh, I, so she was being driven crazy by the suspenseful moments uh, in um, um, in Stranger Things too. So there were a whole bunch of occasions on which I was, uh, you know, I, I turned to her in the middle of the show, you know, and said, you know, said things like, "Steve does not get eaten by the monsters at this time." <laughs> right? uh, anyway, um, but you're right. At the same time that um, he brings this up and claims to be allaying stress and nervous tension, he's creating suspense, right? Notice the difference, right? The difference between 
Um, she does not get eaten by the eels at this time, right? Uh, and the deadly missile attack, shortly to be launched by an ancient automatic defense system, right? This is a major difference, right? She does not get eaten by the eels at this time, which is, of course, a Princess Bride reference for those of you who do, I assume you all get it, but I don't want to assume. I mean, not everyone has seen, you know, one of the world's perfect movies. Um, but anyhow, um, uh, and of course we did a whole Mythgard Academy uh, session on both the book and the and the movie. So uh, I know with a lot of people in this crowd, we've already talked about this. Um, anyhow, that's a delib- That's an interruption at the moment of suspense, right? As the eel is like plunging right towards Buttercup's head, the grandfather stops and says she doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time, right? It would have the same effect if the narrator interrupted during, like while they're frantically trying to get away and pulling levers and breaking off levers and styrofoam peanuts are flying, right? If during that sequence the narrator had interrupted to say uh, they do not get blown up by the missiles at this time, right? Uh, it would have that same effect. But it has a very different... If when Buttercup is just setting off in the boat, the narrator were to interrupt and say, I would like to reassure you that Buttercup does not get eaten, you know, by the shrieking eels when she is thrown overboard, you know, when she leaps overboard into the water, right? Now we're waiting for it to happen. The same thing here, right? I agree that it's the creation uh, of the uh, of the sus- it, it's the creation of suspense, but not just suspense about the deadly missile attack, because he tells us, right? No one is going to be seriously harmed. But then there's the other questions that it raises, as you know, several of you are pointing out, right? As Mike says, what about the petunias and the whale? How do those come in, right? Um, why do we care about the coffee cups in the mouse cage? Why do, you know, why are you even mentioning these things? In telling us that we're laying mystery, right? Um, let there be no mystery of any kind. So I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. But of course, it's ironic, right? Because in telling us these things, he's creating mystery. Why do we care? about the bruise on somebody's upper arm. No, wait, we're told. We don't need to care about that, right? But we're not told that the breakage of the three coffee cups has no significance whatsoever. We're not told that the mouse cage breaking has no significance whatsoever, right? For good reason, because it does have significance, right? Um, We're not told that the demise of the bowl of petunias has no significance whatsoever, for a good reason, because it does, right? And the demise of the innocent sperm whale also has significance in that it's going to be their access point into Magrathea. Um, Yeah, so, David, I agree. Just like confirming that the planet in question is the legendary Magrathea, as he seems to be undermining the whole thing, he's also building, right? We're being pushed, uh, we're being prevented from getting caught up, right? Uh, And yet we're being encouraged to marvel, to wonder, to ask questions. Final question. Again, where's the narrator? 
in this. Look at the tone the narrator is taking here. Stress and nervous tension are now serious social problems in all parts of the galaxy, and it is in order that this situation should not be in any way exacerbated that the following facts will now be revealed in advance. Even the passive voice there will now be revealed in advance is interesting. The way that the narrator... What does the passive voice do? It's usages like this that made your English teacher hate the passive voice and tell you never to use it, even though it's perfectly fine, and you have my permission to use it when it's appropriate. Though the question is that most people don't know when it's appropriate and most students misuse it. That's why most English teachers just say not to use it. But um, the effect of using the passive voice in a situation like that is to conceal the doer of the action, right? Will be revealed in advance. These facts will be revealed. By whom? Who's revealing the facts? The person revealing the facts does not appear, right? Just like when a politician says mistakes were made. Right? Why are they using the passive voice? Because they're attempting to conceal who is the person who made the mistakes, namely himself. Right? He wants to leave himself out of it, so he deflects by using the passive voice. Um, yeah. Anyway, he's, so he's drawing attention away from himself with the use of the passive voice there. The following facts will now be revealed in advance. Right? Um, Tom, I agree. Tom McCarthy says it's it's like a magician's misdirection. Yes. The whole thing, whole passage comes across like that, right? Um, you know, whatever you do, don't look over here, right? So you look over there and don't see what he does with his other hand, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer, in... in Business English? In English class for business majors, did they actually teach you to use the passive voice as a method of deflecting blame? They actually taught you that? That is awesome! I mean, it's despicable, but it's great! that Because that's, that's like what it's actually, you know, that's like a practical use. Uh, that's actually getting what the passive voice is for. That's wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, Wonderful observations. You guys are making such uh, excellent, careful observations here tonight. Um, Mike, uh, I agree. One of the... Where I, I, I agree with Mike that in this third paragraph here, one of the most interesting words, as far as telling us something about the point of view of the narrator or the attitude of the narrator, is the word Innocent. To say that a sperm whale died might just be a reporting of fact, right? But the statement that the sperm whale in question was innocent is claiming a different level of knowledge, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. It's getting late, and i got to go. We'll come back to this. Uh, maybe this slide, maybe not, but certainly this question of the narrator, what's the narrator doing? <laughs> it is, uh, it is, 
possible that I may end up having to add another week <laughs> to this class. But that's okay. I don't regret it in the least bit. Uh, this was really fun. Thanks for joining me uh, in some really up-close reading here tonight. Um, I, uh, I hope you are fun being a, being a, 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 a cautious, careful, and, and, and in a sense resistant reader uh, here trying to figure out where we end up here. Uh, so I think we may end up doing another week, but we'll see. We'll see how far we get next time. Do finish the book for next time. We may or may not get to uh, uh, Life, the Universe, and everything the question and answer uh, next time. Um, but we might. So definitely do read through the end and we'll see. So, okay. Um, so see you guys next year. See you on January 3rd for our next class when we will continue to look at what this uh, what this uh, narrator is up to. So thanks everybody for joining me and I will see you guys in a fortnight. Bye now. <laughs>